brought to you by Penguin. I thought at an early age that the only way I could be good at anything was to be surrounded by enemies. And if I couldn't find any enemies, I would have to make them for myself. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Here we talk to authors about their books, their processes and their inspirations. We want to know what drives them and how the finished work reflects the journey of creating it. We also ask each guest to bring with them four items that have shaped them or their writing in some way. And then we probe a little deeper into why they've had such an impact. This week, I'm joined by a master of historical fiction a man who inhabits the realms of long-destroyed empires and brings them emphatically into our 21st century lives by offering vibrant human characters and battlefield scenes where you can almost taste the blood. In January 2007, this author became the first person in UK history to simultaneously sit at the summit of both the fiction and non-fiction charts when his novel Wolf of the Plains about Genghis Khan perched alongside the runaway non-fiction success The Dangerous Book for Boys, which he wrote with his brother, and which I gave to my son as soon as I knew he would appreciate it. And my gosh, he's dangerous. He once remarked that a good book is about stepping out of yourself and into someone else's world. So today, thank you for stepping into the Penguin podcast world, Con Igledon. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Have you you read every one of the books that are currently behind you? Stacked very neatly. Oh, I see. I thought for a second you were going to say, have I read every one of my own books? I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, I have. I was, <laughs> that was Imagine strange... if you'd said no. Imagine if you'd said no, I haven't. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of the books that are behind me now. I mean, some of them, most of them, oh, I, no, I have a weakness looking at one or two of buying nice editions of books I enjoyed as a child. Like, I think I've got Arabian Nights up there, and if it's a nice edition with a leather cover or something like that, then I absolutely love it, and I bring it home, even if it's uh, a book I haven't read for 30 years, or one I intend to read. I used to do it with my children, you know, when they were very young. I would buy books to read to them, Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. And Winnie the Pooh, if they, they've got illustrated editions somewhere, you know, if it's a really nice illustrated edition, then I've got it. I'm terrible with that, I've just realised. I probably do overdo it. There's a reason this house is stuffed full of books, and it's me. <laughs> what was the book that inflamed your imagination when you were a kid? There were loads. When I was in primary school, I traded, what was his name, Willard Price books. I traded them like other other kids traded football cards, but I had the, the adventures of... Each one had the word adventure in it, so it would be guerrilla adventure or a tiger adventure, shark adventure, something along those lines. And I had... I tried to collect in those pre-internet days when you couldn't just look up uh, things you didn't have. I used to try and collect every single one of them, and I hunted through bookshops to see if I had the whole set of the adventures of Roger and Hal Hunt as they tried to capture animals around the world and bring them back alive. It was not about hunting, it was about uh, procuring them for zoos it was all it was all very sensible and sort of basically decent so I loved those books and I uh, I loved the Jennings books when I was a kid and I loved Roald Dahl and I came across a lot of science fiction from the sort of golden age Robert Heinlein I read and uh, I read uh, oh god the Wizard of Earthsea series and I found books and devoured them I, I loved endless sort of stories of exciting things that happened to other people in far off places and it, it just turned me on to the whole world 
um, historical fiction was something I was reading without realising it was a genre, if that makes any sense. I liked Hornblower. I thought they were terrific. I loved the Patrick O'Brien books. And I wasn't reading them thinking, this is historical fiction about the Napoleonic War or something. I was just reading it thinking, this is a cracking good story. And I'm enjoying it. And that's all that ever really mattered to me. And it's all I ever tried to do. I, I got to the point, like so many people do, I think, where you think, I could do that. I, I, I love books and stories and characters, and I think I could do it. So I set out to to start writing. So where did you devour? Did you devour at home? Was it in the school library? Was it in a local library? Where did you go and devour all these books? I am embarrassed to say I, I, I used to bunk off school a lot, and I'm not sure if I should be admitting this at all. I mean, I even got to the stage of forging my own notes from parents that were as shockingly bad as everyone else's notes were. You know, please excuse my son, Con, this sort of business. And uh, I used to spend most of my days, mostly in particular libraries, Ricelip Manor Library, since gone, there are now flats where that library stood, but they, they never seemed to mind the fact that I was in there, often in school uniform with a school bag, um, <laughs> because I would leave, you know, leave the house to go to school and wave goodbye to my parents to go to the train station and then just get off at a different stop. I mean, that's crazy looking back on it. They were all adults and, you know, they must have thought, why isn't that boy in school? But no one ever stopped me. No one ever sort of said, what are you doing here? Or you shouldn't be in here. So I just stayed and, you know, I, I learned to love books a lot of the time just in that library. Was this all about a love of books or was part of it about just a dislike of school? Uh, some of it was a dislike of school. I wasn't a particularly happy child. It has been the great revelation of my adult life has been having children and then seeing that they are not automatically miserable because I assumed that part of childhood was being miserable almost constantly. That when I saw that they weren't miserable and that they enjoyed even, can you believe it, going to school, I thought, oh, hell, I've misjudged entirely what my childhood was about. If I ever get a time machine, I would do almost all of it again because it was me. I misunderstood what school was about. I was making myself miserable. It wasn't the people around me. And it actually comes down, this will be, I don't know if the listeners will be at all interested in this, but it came down to a particular single misunderstanding, which is that I thought at an early age, from the age of about nine that the only way I could be good at anything was to be surrounded by enemies. And if I couldn't find any enemies, I would have to make them for myself. And so I sort of made life very, very difficult for myself so that I could be the best I could be. A complete misunderstanding of how life works. So by the time really that I worked that out finally that you actually do better when you're surrounded by friends <laughs> and not enemies I was about sort of uh, 16 my G my difficult GCSEs were over my A-levels were beginning and life started to turn around and I became happy uh, for the first time in my life um, seeing my children go through school without that fundamental misunderstanding has been fairly joyous um, for them and for me just as an observer I mean, right now, if there are any clinical psychologists listening to the Penguin yeah. podcast, you're about to have a field day. Most writers, it's worth pointing out, have been outsiders in some way or another. And it's because fundamentally, to write about the human condition authentically, you can't really be in it. 
you need to be outside it so that you can write about it as an observer, because only an observer will see what's going on. The person in the argument hasn't a clue. He's too wrapped up in the arguments. The person standing outside the argument, looking at the argument and and sort of recording it, most writers are observers. So that my mistake in school kind of created an engine for me being an observer because I wasn't that keen on being in it. Um, and I, you know, it, it sort of worked out all right in the end, but it made for some unhappy years in libraries. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And where does a human being start on the page for you? When you begin to construct a human character, where do you begin? It can begin with their history. I mean, long before they're even born. I was intending to write about Pericles. I'd written a series on Julius Caesar and on Genghis Khan on Wars of the Roses, and I was looking for an ancient Greek who wasn't Alexander the Great. So I thought, well, Pericles is the most famous statesman of Athens. But to tell his story, you, I had to tell, first of all, that his father and his father's friends and all the key people in Athens who would form political power for the next 20 years were all in the same field on the same day. And that was the field of Marathon, the Fennel field, which is what Marathon means, in 490 BC. And they were all at that battle. And that's an extraordinary moment in their lives because everyone who was there that day went on to power in Athens. And one of them, Xanthippus, had a son called Pericles. And one of them, uh, Miltiades, had a son called Cimon. And he became Pericles' great friend and competitor. And then there was Themistocles, who, who became the first man in Athens and managed to get rid of every single one of his enemies. And then the Persians invaded. And the great engine for the, the story of Pericles begins with Persia really invading. So to some extent, I, you know, I tell a story like that by knowing who his parents and grandparents were. And I got that, honestly, as a technique from Wilbur Smith. Um, I don't think I've ever actually uh, said this aloud before, but he had he wrote a series of books about the Courtney family. And he, I think it was about seven or eight generations, maybe even 10, because I seem to remember there were 10 books. And the thing is, after five or six of them, I knew someone's great-grandfather better than he did because they didn't know them at all. They had grown up not know. They knew their father, they knew their grandfather, but I remembered the actual intimate stories of the great-grandfather. And it gave a level of depth to characters that I, I could only dream of. I mean, this is this is good. We are not just who we are. We're also who our parents are to, to some extent. That, that influences us and who they are in old age is influenced by who they were as, as young people. So it worked brilliantly. Thank you, Wilbur Smith. I'm glad for you exclusively revealing that on the Penguin podcast. Let's get to your first object. And uh, it's rather an intriguing one, a Roman gladius. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, which is a sword commonly used by ancient Roman foot soldiers. Uh, And this one was produced for a cover of a book. Tell us about this. And you have it there with you, do you? I have the book with me. I mean, you could. it was originally the Emperor series, the third one, Field of Swords, and the publishers had a sword made for the cover. You know, I expressed some delight in it, and they said, you can have it. So I was able to take the thing home. It's a lovely wooden-handled thing, and of course it's it's just a, a, a mock-up of one of the originals, but it does have a lovely feel to it. It is, a, it is effectively 
one of the reasons the Romans were so successful is because by modern standards, and this isn't going to be a very nice thing to say, but they, they carried machetes. I mean, it's a chopping weapon. There was a, a, a Greek who accompanied one of the uh, Roman legions, and the thing that horrified him, and this is pretty bloody, I warn your listeners now, what horrified him is that the Greek was used to spear wounds, which are pretty nasty, but they tend to leave the man intact. Whereas after a Roman battle, the ground was littered with pieces. I mean, this isn't the core of the Julius Caesar story. The core of the Julius Caesar story is a boy who loses his father at a young age and has to survive and becomes fairly ruthless uh, to do it. But uh, it's good to get these details right, I think. That's one of my pet theories, by the way, I should just say. I met a billionaire recently, and I, I don't know many billionaires, but I was fascinated to discover, and I won't mention his name, but he lost his father at 11. And I said immediately, it's funny you should mention that, but both Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan lost their father around that age. And it's so much so that I began to sort of wonder if it wasn't part of the success of very successful men, that they could never get a pat on the back from the man they could no longer impress, that they could never be, they could never know their father's thanks. And that means, therefore, they overachieve because they can never have a sort of well-done kid. Well done, son. Good job. What was his reaction to you saying that out loud rather than just thinking it? As you can tell already from this this interview, I say some things out loud I probably shouldn't. And uh, I don't think he was delighted. If I'm honest, <laughs> I, it was not one of my finest moments, if I'm honest. Maybe I'm paraphrasing Gloria Steinem, but I think she said the truth will set you free, but before that it will piss you off. And uh, perhaps that's what you did with this billionaire, I think. Uh, maybe you set him free. Maybe you set him I, free. I, oh, I, hope, I hope I haven't annoyed him. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about being a spectator. And of course, as an author, you are, but you're also, weirdly enough, intimately involved because you're creating the world. Do you have to have that visceral feeling when you're talking about combat? Well, before getting into battles, I mean, the, the thing about creating characters is that in real life, you obviously can't see what's going on in someone else's head. But in a book, you can because you're going to write it. And not only that, but you can have uh, their reaction to other characters and other characters' reactions to them. It allows you to add layers so that after a while, it, I honestly believed I knew the character of Julius Caesar in, I mean, I was with him for six years and I had written or thought about him continuously for six years. And I thought, I know this man intimately. And it was very important because there were gaps in the historical record that I had to fill. And so I had to understand why he did a couple of things that he did that were utterly inexplicable otherwise. And it, it, it was useful for me because I felt I knew his character well enough and, uh, uh, therefore I could make a pretty decent sort of guess at it. When it comes to the the physical bit and the fighting, I try to be as accurate as I possibly can be, bearing in mind that there will always be a gap. I haven't ever killed anyone. Um, so I wanted to write one scene where somebody smothers a character with a pillow. And so I asked my wife um, if she would mind attempting to do that to me. Um, so I was going to lie on my back and I was going to slap the floor if I started to pass out or something along those lines. And she was going to try a range of different pillows, actually, to see what would work and how how hard it would have to be. And she was enormously enthusiastic um, about that. Um, That's which, research. I mean, yeah. good grief. Well, it was necessary, partly because I discovered that it isn't possible. If you push a pillow onto someone's face, you will have seen many dramas, probably in hospital beds maybe, where someone reaches up, pushes a pillow onto someone's face and 
20 seconds later pulls it away and the person's dead. In real life, the person will be looking at you saying, what are you doing, Dave? Because as long as you quietly breathe through the pillow, <laughs> it's completely useless as a murder device. So <laughs> this kind of thing is kind of important because I, I like to get that, you know, that kind of detail as much as possible. I mean, when I went to Mongolia, I got saddle sores, for example, riding ponies. Um, I was told to avoid, ask for a Russian saddle because the Mongolian saddle was made of wood. And the Russian saddle was leather, great, but it had an iron hoop at the front. And I became intimately involved with that iron hoop over a period of weeks when I was doing 20 miles a day. It rubbed me in places I didn't even know I had. It was an interesting part of the experience, that's all. And even little things like the fact that when the ponies, when the ponies lay down and went to sleep, they, they, they did lie down like, like big dogs. They didn't, I thought ponies, I had this idea that ponies had to stand up. Like those elephants in China recently that have been photographed lying down on their sides, I thought horses had to stand up. But these ponies lay down and curled up their legs and curled in their heads and went to sleep. And it was rather adorable. I mean, these things I would never have found out from, from books. I needed to, uh, needed to go there. I'm, I'm, su- I'm surprised that saddle wasn't one of your objects for today. Well, <laughs> I didn't take it home with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, let's move on to your second object, which moving away from a chopping Roman machete to something much more sedate and creative. Let's talk about this intriguing silver pen. I was given this when I was 18, And when I was a teacher, I bought a moped off someone for £50. I used to ride it into school every day. And I I used to sing Ride of the Valkyries to myself as I was going along Ricelip High Street. And I was the only one who couldn't see what I looked like because I was on the inside of the helmet. I had this silver pen and one day uh, the moped I parked in a local road. And one day I came out from school and it, it had gone. I thought, well, I've got, I'm, I'm a teacher in this school. I've got uh, 1,800, 2,000 kids I could ask. So every class I went into, I said, look, I understand I'm not going to get the moped back. I'm not an idiot. But is there any chance you could ask who has the silver pen that was in the pannier? Because, you know, I would quite like to get that back. It was a gift. Well, to cut a long story short, about a few days went by and a girl, I won't mention her name, she came up to me and she said, I know who, who took the bike and who has the pen. And so she told me where his house was. And it was very close to the school. Then we had half term. It was uh, nine days off. So on the first morning, I went to the house and I knocked on the door and I said, is your son in? Because I believe he's got my moped. And I explained the whole story. And she said, he's not in, but you can come in and wait. So I I went in and waited. And he didn't come home all day. He had some uh, idea that I think I was there. So they were surprised to see me the following morning and every morning after that, because in a sort of Gandhi-like way, I decided that this was going to be my passive resistance. I was going to turn up at their house every single day until I got the pen back. And it, this went on for about five days. And eventually the mother took me down the road. She suddenly came out and grabbed me by the arm and took me down the road and knocked on a door and said, now your son has this man's pen, and I want you to give it back to him. And then she marched off. And I said, so you've got my pen, have you? And she said, no, I've no idea what you're talking about. So I thought, oh. So I went back to the first woman. She said, oh, I can't believe she's doing it. Right, and she marched me back again. She said, don't you lie to him. You know you've got this man's pen. You know you've got it. I know you've got it. You've got it from my son. 
So she left me again and eventually her son was brought out and he said, no, I've never seen a silver pen. And I said, well, I think you have. Don't make me get her again. And this went on and on. Long story short, and it's too late for that now, nine days (laughs) of the holiday went past with me camped outside various houses and it was a failure. At the end, the term started and I was telling a music teacher named Clive outside the front gate of the school and I was saying this whole thing that I was going on and a complete stranger walked past and said excuse me I think this is yours and he handed me the pen and then walked off and I don't know whether they relented whether they decided they would do the right thing whether they were just sick and tired of me turning up at everyone's door and thought I would never give up even though I sort of had but the nice thing was I got this pen back So it just became one of those stories of your life and I've still got the pen and later on when it came to uh, The Dangerous Book for Boys and I wanted to do a chapter on writing it in italic nibs, it was this nib that I sanded down myself and, to be honest, kind of ruined, but, you know, damaged permanently, um, and then wrote <laughs> then wrote the chapter on, you know, italic lettering. I mean, it's... Uh, weirdly, the pen has been a part of my, my career. Are you by nature, a very sentimental person. You know, I would have said once that I wasn't. But, of course, again, it's age. It's one of the things I struggle to do right when I'm writing is to reflect the fact that people change over time. So in writing about Pericles at the moment, his first experience is he's a young man who's evacuated to an island and he's a, a grumpy teenager with his sister and his brother and his mother. And then I've got to write him as a young man in his 20s and he's a little overawed by some of the people around him and he's both aggressive and unnecessarily harsh and he falls in love too easily and gets into his first disastrous marriage and so on and so on. And over time, the man you are in your 40s and 50s is not the man you were in your 20s or 30s. He's a a different beast entirely. I don't think I was particularly sentimental when I was young. I am now. I mean, uh, this is such a cliche, but now I can be watching an episode of Teen Titans with my son. And if if there's something about the importance of friendship, (laughs) I'll find tears, you know, sparkling in my eyes. And it's utterly ridiculous. It's embarrassing. But Cotton, was then the theft of the pen about the indignation. It was more about your pride being hurt than the sentimentality of the pen itself. If I'm honest, I was trying to win. I I set about that like a competition. I'd lost the big thing, but I could still win. And yeah, there was an element of sort of, there was competition in that. But anyway, a lot of of stories came out of that single event. And I I do love stories. I I remember them. That's how I remember life and how I, uh, how I like to live, I suppose. One story to the next. Um, With your latest book, Protector, what fascinates you about powerful men? Um, I have chosen interesting characters in the past, like Julius Caesar and Genghis Khan. And the question for me is always in awe of how one man can make an extraordinary change in a single life. The name Caesar was still being used as Tsar or Kaiser by the Germans in you know, World War I, and that was his surname. It's an extraordinary thing to have an impact that lasts for 2,000 years, especially if you're not a uh, religious leader. But for this, it was more the events, because you, know, you had the opening salvo of, of Marathon, and then you have the big Persian invasion, the famous Xerxes, and you have uh, Thermopylae, and the Battle of Plataea is less well-known, but... 
That's what drew me in. Um, the characters who had this sheer nerve to try and stand against an army that was hundreds of thousands strong and 900 ships, and, and they had absolutely no chance. And they must have known that. And then the ridiculous thing, of course, is the fact that they came up with some extraordinary cleverness and ruses. I mean, there were moments of utter genius that saved the Athenians. And then, of course, the engine, I suppose, behind all of this is that eventually I know uh, that the Athenians and the Spartans are, are going to go to war and Pericles is going to be at the heart of it. So to some extent, all of my preamble is not the great man's story. It's it's how did these two great civilizations in in Greece come to war? And that's that's an amazing story. And Pericles, as I say, is at the heart of it, but he's not a great man in the sort of style of Genghis, a great conqueror, or even a great man in the style of... Uh, Caesar, who sort of took on the mantle of a, a civilization from his uncle Marius. No, he's he's a great man in his own unique way, and I, I hope to to tell it uh, because the events are what made him great, rather than anything else. Let's get on to your third object now, and it's an illustration this time, Con. Well, it was a sort of a a fairy character. The, it, it came about because I was at a children's firework display at a local school. And one of my very young children said, why do they make that high-pitched sound as they go overhead? And I said, well, it's because they stuff fairies into the tubes. And when they set them on fire, that's the sound that they make. Because it amuses me to talk to my you know, children in this way. And the woman who was standing behind me, who didn't know me particularly, I think, at the time, I don't think I'd met her before, she was amused by this and she went home and drew this image, which is the image of a, a fairy-type character who has been shoved in a Roman candle and uh, set alight and uh, whose, whose fairy dust, much like a moth's dust, the dust you get on a moth's wings, but, you know, is the very engine that drives it and makes it uh, colourful and beautiful. And we came up with children's books off the back of that, um, which we called Tollins, and was all about uh, the invention of fireworks, which we set in Chorley Wood back in about, I think, 1912, with no historical accuracy whatsoever, I have to say. I'm sure, you know, the Chinese would be astonished to find out that, <laughs> that fireworks were not invented in China and that gunpowder was a completely new thing. But it, it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it's one of the nice things. I suppose I like it because it's, uh, it's something that came out of nothing. It was a, a, a question from one of the kids and it, it turned into two books and uh, a lot of fun. We travelled the, uh, the, the country talking to school children. We had, we had workshops drawing the things. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It has been nice. I'm a, as, a, as careers go, I've had a very odd one. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, there was the Dangerous Book and all the rest of it and the Tollins. And it's just I've had some extraordinary opportunities. It has brought me things that I didn't know would happen. I mean, I've, I've been to strange countries very far away to talk about books and to meet people there. And, and nobody ever said that at the beginning, that writing might be a career that involves travel. I mean, you know, who knew? The publisher said at the very beginning that we want to hear that you have the next book planned because they wanted a career and not just a one-off book. And that was fine for me because I had written the second book before the first book was, you know, properly uh, in the shops. Because I, once I, I'd wanted to be a writer for such a long time that when I finally had the opportunity, I went a little crackers. I mean, I, I, I just uh, wrote my socks off about the next decade because I loved it. It's what I'd always, always wanted to do. 
Well, let's take a listen now to an extract from the audiobook edition of the latest release in your Athenian series, Protector. I believe Themistocles is suggesting we appear to break our word, Xanthippus said, that we only threaten to make an alliance with Persia. His gaze turned inward for a moment, and he nodded. That would bring Sparta to the field, as you say, with their own destruction on the line. But it will confirm everything they hate about Athenian politics. They already call us whores, gentlemen. They'll have that view confirmed when we force them out with a threat of our betrayal. He glanced at Themistocles then, seeing a man borne down by exhaustion. Xanthippus breathed out slowly. We'll be storing up trouble for the future, he muttered. The Spartans won't forget. If we win, they will accept we were right all along, Themistocles said. But honestly, I don't care what they think. Athens was burned, gentlemen. I... He squinted suddenly, cursing under his breath. A plume of smoke was rising in the distance. Each of them turned to see what had caught his eye, and then swore or muttered prayers. The Persians had entered the city once again. They had come with fire to damage and destroy. Whatever we have to do, Themistocles said softly over the cry of gulls and the noise of the sea washing Salamis. We cannot live like this. Aristides put out his hand, and Themistocles took it. One by one, the others offered their grip, their personal oath, the gesture spreading through the crowd around them as they sought comfort in the strength of others, a simple grip and release. They sealed a promise of vengeance while the city of Athena burned for a second time. That was a reading from Protector, written by Con Igledon and narrated by George Blagden. The audiobook is available to buy now and there is a link to it in the programme description of this episode. Before we get back to the questions, please do remember to follow the Penguin podcast, comment, rate and share with others. Now, Con, on to your final object, which is a book of handwritten poems. This, of course, is more the sort of thing that you would expect, unlike a sword and the stolen pen and all the rest of it. This is your writer's object. This is the thing that every writer is meant to have, and uh, this is very much mine. I went on holidays to Amalfi years and years ago and discovered that they um, they produced these very nice leather books. And I started writing um, poems that I loved. I wanted just to put down a poem that I enjoyed and I hand wrote it so that one day I would have a sort of anthology of my own. And I've got 61 poems in there at the moment and each one was written out by hand and I can flick to any page and find something that I love. And that's pretty much its entire purpose. But it's beautiful. Thank you. It is It is lovely. I mean, it. God, it really is. Just numbering the pages with a... Uh, with a fountain pen, was just gorgeous. It took forever. But then I've got all the collection. I've got, you know, John Donne's Death, and I've got To Autumn, and I've got the Tennyson's The Eagle and God's Grandeur by Ger Gerald Manley Hopkins and all of the rest of them. I've got some old ones, and I've got some new ones. I've got one or two I did myself because I can't resist that sort of thing. And uh, 
I've got a, a selection of the Lays of Ancient Rome, um, which I, that was originally going to be the title of my first book. I wanted to call it For the Ashes of His Fathers and the Temples of His Gods. And the publisher said, if we use that as the title, there'll be no room for anything else on the front cover con. Even your name will have to go because that is the longest title we have ever heard. So I said, a little unhappily, a little miserably, well, what would you suggest then? And they said, well, why not keep it simple? We'll call it the Gates of Rome. I said, okay, that will, that will be fine. <laughs> you live and learn. These people are professionals, to be fair, and I very much wasn't. Finally, Con, we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they have devoured. So what is the current book that you just can't put down? Blackwing by Ed McDonald. It's the first in a fantasy series. It was, it's really good. I was really enjoying it. It's uh, one of those nice things. Do you read at night? Do you read at all times? Do you find that reading books gets in the way of you writing books? I used to have a large group of authors and if they, whichever book they came out, whichever book they published, I would buy, usually in hardback, and devour um, I'd usually read it once quickly and then again slowly over the next few days and nothing got in the way of that. Unfortunately, as time marches on, um, a lot of them have died. People like David Gemmell and, and Terry Pratchett. And as a result, um, I don't have half as many authors whose books I won't miss, whose books will take away, take me away from real life and, and I'll be doing nothing but reading it. So what I tend to do now is I, I find books by chance. I, t- I take uh, punts in, in bookshops. I, I pick things up as I see them. I, I trust the, the judgment of other people who seem to like them and I, I, I take a risk. And if I don't like it, I always say to people, if you don't like one of mine, give it 20 pages. And if you don't like it, put it down. It's my job to catch your attention. It's my job to catch your interest. And I apply that standard to others. If I pick up a book and I've read 20 pages and I'm not absolutely fascinated to find out what happens next, I tend to put it down. It saves my time and theirs. And I'm happy for that standard to be applied to mine. In fact, if the whole world gave me 20 pages, I would be a very happy man because I know a, a good number of them would continue. And that's all I ever really wanted. All I ever wanted was to tell stories and have people enjoy them. It's all I ever sort of did as a kid and with my brother and Dungeons and Dragons and all sorts of strange things that I, I got involved in and uh, the writing and the reading is all I've uh, all I've ever wanted. God, this has been such a lovely hour to hang out with you. It really has. I found it fascinating. You're a fascinating man. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's kind of you. Huh? I'm slightly regretting <laughs> telling you the stuff about the libraries but and the bunking off school. And uh, I feel like I should backpedal from all of that stuff now and obviously stay in, stay in school, kids, and, uh, you know, work hard. <laughs> and, and don't try smothering anyone with a pillow. There's a whole list of caveats attached to this podcast, uh, Con, so thank you for spending time with us on the Penguin Podcast. 